Top of the news this evening is speculation concerning the real facts behind the Department of Health announcement about a radioactive spill supposed to have occurred yesterday at the state nuclear plant. You know what you're thinking. Mine's bigger than yours, right? It's not fair. Throw it away. All right? Tons of popcorn there. Yeah. And all you gotta do is go climb a tree to go eat it. <laughs> it was a night like any other night. Then something happened. Oh, good lord. It's. It's unbelievable. It's. It's horrible. Welcome to the Really Awful Movies Podcast, a celebration of low-budget cinema. The sleep of reason gives birth to monsters. Hi, my name's Chris, and along with Jeff, we're bringing you the very best and worst of horror, sci-fi, post-apocalyptic wasteland, kung fu, and women in prison movies from the 1960s to today. Check us out at reallyawfulmovies.com, part of the Crypt TV family. Tetron headquarters. Here's episode 167. George C. Scott in The Changeling. Not to be confused with the, um, I don't even know what year it came out, but the movie Changeling. Lacking, Directed by Clint Eastwood. Starring the article, uh, starting Angelina. UN Ambassador uh, Angelina Jolie. Indeed, yeah, yep, yep. Just minus the definite article. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the Changeling horror fans, real horror fans will know. And, and most we, love. Yeah, I think so. Uh, came to this in university where the undergrad society of the, uh, well, psychology undergraduates at University of Toronto decide to screen this on in the student center some Friday night. And 
I just decided to tag along. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anyone in my program. It's a big, faceless, uh, somewhat difficult, challenging place to study. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get myself ingratiated to some of my classmates. And I had heard about the Changeling, and I always thought that's it's that ghost movie, that infamous ghost movie. Mm -hmm. Not the biggest ghost fan, but you can't go wrong with the premise of the guy acting as the caretaker for a house. Or in the case of a family, burnt offerings, or in the case of The Shining, the guy and his family. And there's something kind of intriguing about that mm -hmm. setup, even though the two of us have not shied in our voicing our dissatisfaction with a lot of supernatural type horror films. Well, okay, so I just wanted to explore uh, that. So you were, this was when you were at the studying at the University of Toronto. Yeah. I'm surprised that they chose this movie uh, to play at the student center because normally you would think that they would choose something more thrill a minute, more of a party movie. This is sort of a more of a deliberately paced kind of cerebral horror flick. Is it because parts of this movie were filmed at the University of Toronto? Is that perhaps why they? Uh, I'm not sure, but I, at the time I, had, I made no connection between the Canadianness of this movie. Mm -hmm. There's, I think, there's City Hall. There's some shots of Vancouver. Well, most of it was filmed in Vancouver. Yeah, there's a bar called the Van. Uh -huh. It's like, okay, there's Van, Vancouver. But the actual uh, shots that were t that took place on a university campus that was, was and U the classrooms that was U of T. Yeah, that was your alma mater. That that might have done it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's interesting how like that setup is really fantastic and hilarious, where a house becomes available on the market and it's and. It's always some sprawling, dilapidated uh, fixer-upper. And the person just walks in there as if this is a good thing, that you can get respite and peace and quiet to occupy this giant house. To me, that from the get-go is creepy. And I don't know if you would do that. Like, if, if a place like this came up, is that your idea of a good time? If you needed to get marking done, like for your students? It's like, oh yeah, that, this, this creaky house. No, definitely not. I, uh, I'm a... Avowed condo dweller. I love living. You know, I there was a time. You know, I used to live in you know houses, and I even at one point had to. I was the sole occupant of a rather large house, and it's a lot of work, a lot of maintenance, and uh, houses are kind of scary. I mean, there's a lot of places for shit to hide, be it the the attic, be it the cellar, and don't go in the basement. A lot of that is. Um, it's, it's, yeah, exploited exploiting here. Exploiting this movie. Um, it, it's funny. I mean, you you know you get the. I mean, yes, there's. You know, there's a few things that you brought up we can, I would like to talk about. I mean, for example, first of all, the supernatural. It's hard to say. I mean, you and I, when we say we have a disdain for the supernatural, I think it's modern supernatural movies. You know, you're, again, your paranormal activities and your conjurings and whatnot. But back in the 70s, they were making some pretty good, in the early 80s, this one came out in the 80s, some really good supernatural movies. You can't dismiss a movie like, let's say, I mean, because Supernatural also includes demonic possession, so you got the exorcist mm -hmm. in there. I know you hate that now when they have demonic possession movies where some young girl, all of a sudden, her eye, her pupils uh, yeah. go back in her head and they turn white and she's flouncing about. But I mean, <laughs> back in the day, Supernatural movies were pretty damn scary. And uh, this movie they had some genuine scares. It's This is a movie that was a tax shelter movie. It was made under the auspices of that wonderful, um, some derided now, but it really, for the horror industry in Canada, we had some incredible films that came out of the tax shelter era. We've talked about it many times on the podcast, and movies such as Black Christmas, Prom Night. And any of the Cronenberg films. Like well, the early Cronenberg yeah. films, uh, Visiting With Hours, um, 
my bloody valentine <laughs> what have you these are um curtains so these are just great movies that were coming out because of our lax <laughs> some would say yeah tax code at yeah. the time <laughs> to encourage film production in canada Films that really were not Canadian were deemed Canadian as long as two-thirds of the crew were Canadian and there was film in Canada and usually they would get a big American star to come in. In this case, we had the wonderful George C. Scott and he's an incredible actor. So he, he lent this film some real gravita yeah. and that's one another reason why I think this film uh, is high up there in the pantheon. A lot of people really respect The Changeling. And uh, so Supernatural, when done right, can work. And my my when I revisited this movie for the purpose of this discussion, not my first viewing, but this is not a film I go to often. You know, I know a lot of people really like The Changeling, they know it's, it's one of the scarier movies ever made. Yes, there are some real genuine frights. I almost think this is two separate movies. Ooh, uh, that, that's crazy. We must be sharing the same brain, like some 60s monster movie, because I feel this is two movies. Mm -hmm. There's one straight ahead, uh, I don't, Okay, yeah, so your standard setup, guy goes into a house, your burnt offerings, the uh, mental degradation and torment that is mm. faced by the protagonist, by these supernatural beings. And then the second half where he tries to figure out what is happening, and I think less successfully. Exactly. Uh, as and it becomes procedural. It so, becomes almost like a political horror along the lines of the, or a horror with some political overtones. Along the lines, let's say the Omen, some of the sequels, and or or, um, or even, the even, Dead Zone. Yeah. Oh, even like the conversation with Gene Hackman. Because once he, it's interesting because this is a movie that's almost two hours in length, and the first hour is straight ahead horror, and then in the to begin the second hour, he pretty much figures out the mystery as to who is haunting his house and why, and then it's a matter of uh, corroborating out. that yeah. story and sussing out the real perpetrator. Yeah, and, that, and that, that's pretty hilarious because this is a movie that eases you into it and it doesn't reward the viewer with quick jumps. Uh, there, it's, no, but see, it's, that, that's it right there. Why do you say reward? Like that's uh, Okay, okay, see, that's, yeah. That's, that's one thing we, we don't like. Okay, yeah, I didn't mean that in a loaded term. Mm -hmm. I just mean it's, it's, it eases you into it and uh, the first genuine scare you get is when he's tinkling the ivories. This is the character of Russell, who is a university John music Russell. professor, mm -hmm. uh, composing. Uh, he teaches composing to undergraduates. And he is playing Mozart and in this big empty house and mm -hmm. just performing and the, the, the obligatory like weirdo superintendent or like caretaker guy says, oh, uh, don't let me interrupt your composing. And he's not composing, it's Mozart. And he says, okay, whatever. You didn't interrupt me. He leaves the piano and you get a single stroke of the key mm -hmm. and that indicates that there's a ghost there and it, but this is after like quite a bit of talking and quite a bit of setup. like setup well, and the wide setup, angle shots yeah, of well, this but that, house but that's fine see that's all yeah thing. yeah number one okay the setup is that this is a man who is a successful composer and an academic as well a professor and he had a family and we get a flashback he had a wife and a daughter who they're, uh, they're on the road one day in winter climb. The car broke down. They're pushing uh, the vehicle. He finds the phone booth. He tries to call. This is, of course, you know, he has to make this qualification out pre-cell phone. He tries to call AAA for some roadside assistance. Yep. Yeah. As he's in the phone booth, and for some weird reason, unable to get out, 
he witnesses a uh, truck plowing into his vehicle, killing his wife and daughter. Flash forward, Russell is wrapped with guilt and uh, grieve, he's just grieving, and he needs to find a, a new life. A new, so he's, he's offered this uh, professorial position at university in Seattle. And when he goes there to talk with the child, he says, well, where are you going to be staying? And he says, you know, we'd like to stay in a hotel or what have you. He goes, no, I'd like a house. I'd like a big house. Some, some, a place where I could bag my keys with impunity. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah, would I want to live alone in such a gigantic house? No. Absolutely not. Um, it's just too... Uh, I, I've it's, seen as many horror movies as I have. It doesn't even matter. Just living in a house just on your own. There have been times when you've had to venture into the basement and you put on that light and you go... Like, there's... There's nothing that compares, and there's, there's a reason. There's a huge discrepancy and disparity between the number of horrors set in a house and the number of horrors set in a high rise, which you can count on one hand. No, and I, I have one reviewed on the on the site today. Oh, okay. Whenever you're listening to this, called the Tower, mm -hmm. which is a tax shelter movie about uh, a green energy tower that starts to go haywire and starts to suck energy out of the building occupants. But still, like an old house is the classic template for a horror movie and of course the floorboards creak the, the creak attic floor, the attic with the cobwebs and the dust and the artifacts this was a house that was uh i don't remember when it was built but it's it's a it's a victorian uh, sprawling homestead and houses unlike high-rises are filled with memories and there's there's a reason like people don't have fond memories of growing up in a condo. Like my apologies here. Your home is feels like home, but people grow up in houses predominantly, and they're attached with all sorts of memories. And houses have incredible backstories. This house has an incredible backstory. The other thing too, before we want to get into the backstory of the house, is you're talking about the sprawling um, camera work, and everything. and that I thought was incredible because the camera was just all over the place. These wonderful dolly shots, tracking oh, shots, yeah. etc. Really taking through, uh, you through the expanse of this of this edifice yeah. and really making the house a character unto itself. And that yeah. was successful. And Going then, up the banister and just neat. creeping around. Very just, talking actually, yeah. in many a way. And then, you were talking about that scene, that our first sort of evidence of the supernatural, where he gets up on the piano, he moves one way, the camera moves the other way. We see the piano the camera pauses and then we see that one key press and that is interesting because then we then we as the audience we have om om omniscience is that the word yeah yeah and we we're privy to something he he's really At other this point, people he doesn't know he doesn't know but yeah. we know that there's some some shit afoot in this house and that's the first evidence of something wrong but then there other things start to happen noises at 6 a.m constantly just lasting for a minute or two these loud banging noises yeah and and also regarding that the the camera work I just love when he's exploring because the it's he attributes it to probably a and Mr. Tuttle this caretaker as well it's an old house with old pipes and an old furnace so he attributes it to other things but as as he's exploring I love how the camera zooms in and out and at one point was sitting on his shoulder as if like I, I found that just intensely creepy that there was something lurking behind him, and it, the camera became a ghost as well. Indeed, I mean, you know, again, when he's when he goes up to the attic and he sees a little wheelchair, and that's obviously going to figure in a plot. And he, again, he leaves the frame, and the camera just zooms on the wheelchair for a moment or two, just for a beat or two, and we know. And it's you know, I'm comparing this to 
your modern day supernaturals where either got to have, as you said before, rewarded with these gigantic jump scares. No, there was not one cat scare in this movie. <laughs> there was not one mirror scare. Yeah. In many ways, this was almost like the Halloween of uh, supernatural movies in the sense that less was more. And when the real fright started happening, a la his daughter's ball bouncing down the stairs, the wheelchair moving of its own volition, this was, these were earned frights. You didn't have a soundtrack with like a big crescendo of music. Yeah. You didn't have the uh, all the all the tropes that we have grown to either know and love or know and hate in supernatural movies. Yeah, this was a movie where the scares were genuine, and many people cite scenes again the wheelchair scene movie. So just the wheelchair rocking back and forth on its own, the ball. You know, this was a ball that was owned by his daughter when she was alive. He was still holding on to it. The ball is. Bouncing down the stairs, the ball. Then he takes the ball. He tries to throw it in the river. It's back. <laughs> yeah. So, this is all evidence of some sort of malevolent force within the house. Other things happening: glass breaks from within the house. Finally, and it's interesting too because many a time, and it's it's, it's even more interesting because this is a man of academia. He's and he's a musician, but he's also a professor. There's always that skepticism. Oh, it can't be supernatural. There's got to be some rational explanation at the beginning. Yeah, of course, he calls in a plumber. Let's check the pipes. Let's yeah. check the furnace, etc. But our character here, Russell, he's pretty readily... He's suggestible in a way. And, well, I guess it would have made things different had he, be a pro had he been a professor of... of physics or biology. But I think it was kind of savvy move on the part of the, mm -hmm. the filmmaker to make him... A, a musician and more from the arts field yeah. because he he's uh, he's suggestible and he's privy he's privy to the suggestion that this could very well be a malevolent supernatural force. He teams up with uh, the lady who rented him the house. Yeah. they start to investigate the backstory. Uh, they determine that some some real shit was went down in this house. This is a house that doesn't want occupants. All of a sudden, paranormal investigators are brought in. Psychics <laughs> yeah. are brought in. I love it from the psychic. This is a great scene too. The Psychic Research Institute, and this is some guy, of course, who's, who's got the obligatory crazy hair, and he says ninety nine percent of of paranormal cases are rubbish, are garbage. But that one percent is what you got to look out for. And he says, I've got these people who can take care of it. So he, which is weird, is he's from an institute. He's uh, also a man of science, you can tell, because like like a uh, ad for headache medicine, like the guy's got a white lab coat, so he is a scientist. Mm -hmm. He sends the team of paranormal investigators to this house mm -hmm. and they, with recording equipment and a medium, they try to talk to the, the I guess you'd call it a, oh, a revenant, the, the creature that's talking to them from beyond the grave and they try and communicate and I thought this scene was like this gave me the chills I don't remember much of this movie but I remember the seance and I remember the drowning as being the two just standouts mm -hmm. and the medium is communicating with this creature and she's scrawling on a piece of paper, a piece of paper. oh curious, my yeah. god that was intense mm -hmm. and other like my god there's tons of supernatural movies where they bring in the um where they bring in the, me the spirit medium, and they have these scenes, but it's never done. Yeah, yeah, poltergeist. There's numerous occasions where they bring in some, and just and all of that. There's a lot of it's in movie land. Every major university worth its salt has a 
paranormal research department <laughs> yeah. with some kook. Like I, I think the only movie that comes to my head right now, but it's an amazing movie, is The Entity, starring Barbara Hershey. Ooh. Uh, have you ever seen that one? No, no. Uh, it's based on a true story about a woman who was systematically, night by night, being raped by a revenant. Ooh. Really, really edgy and really good. But yeah. Wow. Um, I always forget. Wait, is it an incubus or a succubus that comes to you for, and sexually assaults you in your dreams? That right. one, I believe, be the succubus. Okay. Well, maybe it's just, yeah, it's, it's gender-based. That one's an incubus, the other's succubus based on the prefix. I don't know. But that, that's creepy as all hell. But, but again, that's supernatural that doesn't pull punches because of the rape element. Uh, and the exorcist doesn't pull punches because of the infamous cross masturbation scene. Mm -hmm. And the, the problem we have with supernatural and the examples we've cited that counter our objections are these films pull no punches. Whereas the PG-13 fair, I think we would probably have the same objection if there were other types of horror that also pulled punches. But there's no, never a body count in one of these Oculus-type movies. Maybe you're lucky to get someone die, but... You're lucky to get someone die. Yeah, I, hey, that, we, we've talked about this before. I am only, I don't want to say only, mm -hmm. I'm predominantly invested in a horror film if someone dies. Because then I know that it could be me. If I don't have to worry about dying, what the fuck do I care? Mm. Right? Not as part of my French, but really, like that's what you're you're really invested in is a creature that can take your life. But what makes this movie successful as a supernatural fi uh, film is the fact that it was played straight throughout. There was, first of all, I, yeah, I think I think it's a great movie, burnt offerings. But you know, you got some campiness in there. You got. Burgess Meredith hamming it up. <laughs> this is a straight movie with an Oscar-winning actor, George C. Scott, who, I mean, the man is incredible. Dr. Strangelove, Patton, The Hustler, mm. went on later on. Oh, Hardcore is an amazing movie. Later on, I think it was one of his last roles, The Exorcist Three. He didn't do much in the horror genre, but just by virtue of this esteemed actor acting in a horror film and playing it completely straight, that gave it some gravitas. The fact that it didn't fall on all the tropes of the horror genre. You know, you got to remember, this came out in 1980, so this was sort of in the heart of the slasher boomer, if yeah. not the apex, you know, it was starting to really build, yeah. you know, two years after Halloween. And as I said before, this was the Halloween of supernatural films. It was restrained. The soundtrack did not have the cheap crescendos to make you jump. They did not have any of the f stupid cliches. This was, this, this felt almost like a prestige film, a prestige yeah. horror movie. And I think that's what made it so successful. And then also, when we got to the second half of the story, that gave it more of an element that sort of almost brought it into a different... Where if even if you're not a horror fan, you can appreciate those sort of conspiratorial elements. I don't want to get too... You know, I don't want to spoil much of it, because a lot yeah. of this movie is the mystery and the unraveling of, of the mystery. But because it was played straight, because there was gravitas... Because the scares felt earned, and because at the same time, okay, maybe you you know you can't invest in the fact that will this man live or die, George C. Scott, but you can invest in the fact that he's a lonely man who lost his family in a very traumatic way. Hey, well, that that you're invested in too, because mm -hmm. you you see something that is impactful, and that was tough, and you and 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 uh, an astute move on the part of the filmmakers for. Uh, engaging him like this because you get uh, not it's it's not a huge payoff but you get something tragic happening that he has to 
cope with and he has to because he com becomes embroiled in the mystery deal with so that's something he could have just been an average guy in the house but it, it further lends uh, your sympathy and your empathy for him and also the fact that he's just such a strong man and he's so tall and he's so accomplished mm -hmm. and you don't he's by no means a victim and you you kind of feel you, you feel for him in a way you wouldn't it, could, it would have been so much easier to put someone of some other kind of stature in this film and but as he said he's suggestible but not overly so he's skeptical but not overly so he reacts pretty much like any of us would and I think that's to this movie's mm. credit. He's grieving, but not overly so. Yeah, it's it, it's very it's it's subtle, it's nuanced, and the supernatural elements work wonderfully. And there are scenes that some people have cited as some of the scariest scenes in horror history, like the wheelchair the moving on its own volition, yeah. the drowning, and the ball bouncing on the stairs. And then we get to the second half of the movie, and then it sort of shifts gears. Once he, I mean, there, okay, so there's a couple cliches. I mean, you get that you, you find the artifact, and the artifact, of course, ha, you know, has some sort of resonance which leads you to what really happened in this house. And then there's this whole conspiracy that they have to unravel. And yeah, and announced through like considerable exposition mm -hmm. uh, from the ghostly creature himself, saying, actually announcing his name, because this is a part spoiler. You think the ghost is someone who it actually isn't. So let, leave it at that, but uh, he announces himself by way of the great beyond, and that's through exposition, and that's something you don't see coming. So it leads you down a garden path of sorts, because mm -hmm. uh, the viewer would think that maybe his young daughter is trying to communicate from beyond the grave. That's the obvious thing, the ball bouncing, and which is his daughter's ball, And but really it's not. It's the creature trying to, we won't say anything more, but relate to the protagonist in a different kind of way. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, without getting too much involved into it. Right, but, and this is a creature who, I don't want to say, I, I guess it's somewhat of a spoiler, who suffered uh, an unjustifiable demise mm -hmm. and also had a pretty tormented life and his restless spirit is roaming the house. He's a revenant and he wants to communicate with somebody in the land of the living to seek justice and revenge and retribution. And then, as I was saying before, we get into the second half of the film, and that was when my interest started to wane just a wee bit. Oh, likewise, when they start, uh, this is hilarious too, because any house that you occupy that has to be, where you have to consult the historical society to, to live there, it's like, okay, steer clear, it's not a place you want to go. Also, like, Claire is the woman who helped rent him the house, mm -hmm. and he, she becomes, uh, this almost becomes a cop buddy pick with the two of them doing detective work, and it just, it made me, made me laugh when they're going to the library, and this is all research that you still have to do at a library, because not everything has gone online. What, the good old microfiche? The good old microfiche. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. like scanning through like old, old newspapers on this machine that I never figured out how to work, it, and you'd have to find some doddering, decrepit, dusty librarian to come help you with oh it. Oh my lord. You know, now, now I, it, it, this has been sort of a pretty on-the-level discussion. We haven't really uh, had any tangents or anything in terms of personal anecdotes, but since we brought up the microfiche, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about an anecdote. Yeah. And that is, uh, I was a weird kid. I was a kid who really uh, didn't have much in the way of uh, a vibrant social life. When I was <laughs> <laughs> so, when I, and I've always been nostalgic, you know? And when I was younger, for me, a good day was to go to the library 
and spend half the day pulling tomes off the shelf and reading them, and then spend the other half of the day going down to where they had the microfiche and grabbing a bunch of papers from my, you know, my prime when I was a kid, you know, when I, when I felt the most happy, when I felt the most, you know, like everything in the world was safe and whatnot, and looking at the microfiches of, of local papers but I wasn't reading the newspapers for, you know, oh, this was what happened, like, with Reagan and Gorbachev. Had a set. I was looking at the entertainment sections. Mm. So I could look at the actual, the film advertisements and just sort of reminisce wow. about, yeah. So I was just the entertainment section from, let's say, June 3rd, 1984. And I wanted to see what, you know, great summer movies came out back then. But then, invariably, that fucking microfiche would always get tangled <laughs> and twisted. And I always had to call the librarian over to help me out. and they all, or, or else I would return and be like... Here you go, yeah, and it would just be this. Here it is. It was like it, it was like a cassette tape, you yeah. know, when the, everything was out, and I always got looked oh at askance by these librarians. <laughs> but the Microsoft microfiche is still. Yeah, it, it tears at the old heartstrings. Uh, every week, I went to the library, and it just fills. It, it opens so many doors. It filled me with wonder. I used to read about Harry Houdini and 1960s monster movies and wrestling and Formula One racing and all this stuff that. Yeah, it's just opened so many doors, and even I would even rent the the types of horror movies that they would allow you to rent as a little kid from there. Of course, they wouldn't l let you rent the hard horror. They probably do now, but at the time they didn't. So I would have to get your Poltergeist or the or the Frighteners or that kind of thing. So you could get these sort of tame movies, and yeah, that that part just made me laugh. The 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 but the. My my interest sort of waned and the toward the back end and as it started to be a little more convoluted and as they become I think it's fair to say we can disclose that a high ranking figure is involved in the restless spirit in the house without any spoiling it but I didn't feel as invested in him somewhat mm -hmm. because he's far enough generationally removed that. It's almost like the sins of the father and the son. I, I didn't feel uh, that he, he was so bad that he, he w w deserved to come up. That he wanted to. No, it's true because I mean there was there was a, a conspiracy afoot, and that. But this the person who uh, ultimately gets to come up in was not the uh, the aggressor of this conspiracy. He was not. The catalyst. He was basically the pa the passive person that was involved, and yeah. was the one that was. I mean, left he, he was remaining. still a, not a, t a good man, but that doesn't mean he was deserving. Well, do you say that's by virtue of his job, or <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Without saying, yeah, I mean, they they disclosed to make him unsympathetic, but it didn't. It certainly did not help this film that uh, who who they picked, and it did it, it did take away mm -hmm. from it, as well as the involvement of the police, who subsequently as let's say certain people became involved with certain high-ranking officials and the police involvement therein. Um, yeah, not as much personal involvement on my front. But no, I'm going to say, I mean, my interest started to wane. It wasn't wholly unsuccessful. I was still compelled. It did get a little convoluted. Um, there were moments when you sort of had to go uh, kind of almost think back and rewind, almost say, oh, what was that again? Yeah, it, it, because it... it Okay, <laughs> I use rewarded in a sense that you might have thought maybe pejoratively, but this rewards patience mm -hmm. because if you miss ten, attention, yeah, if you miss 10 seconds, you will not know what's going on because there's certain key moments, and to this film's credit that it does that, that you have to know what's going on at every turn mm -hmm. for, to be able to follow it. But at the end of the day, it's all about the frights 
and uh, the there's a certain I guess uh, soundtrack element that's become a cliche, but you cannot fault the Changeling for having this. I'm thinking of a movie called Children of the Corn, obviously, which we podcasted, but it exists on in many different films, and that's the obligatory children's chorus for the soundtrack. So you have, but kids' voices are creepy, and the fact that the restless spirit is a child, I think, played into that. But the soundtrack was so intense. There was clanging, and it actually got my heart racing. There's several instances of clanging. I, th I want to say bells, but I'm not even sure what was clanging. It might have been pipes, but it was it was so abrasive, and it made my heart race. Uh -huh. And that's a f just a physical stimulus that you can't help but react to. And I always think, okay, if I'm in a, a loud theater, they always turn up the volume loud in a in a cinema when there's a supernatural film and those are the cheap scares you get when the cat jumps out of the uh -huh. bag or whatever but this got to me sitting here watching it in my own apartment just that yeah there was a few and the drowning scene was out of this world mm -hmm. uh, and you it's funny when you mentioned uh, mm -hmm. burnt offerings we both mentioned it and how it's come up the similarities are threefold the i guess the academic type figure who goes into this dilapidated house in the attic there's something untoward and both feature a drowning scene that mm -hmm. really shook us both well no i mean it's interesting because you you keep mentioning that drowning scene it didn't shake me as much as uh, i thought just the simple minimal ball bouncing on the stairs for me was the most effective fright hmm. i'm wondering what i was going to ask you as a follow-up what about what about that drowning scene was so indelibly scary for you well i guess because uh well i don't want to be overly dramatic mm -hmm. but i, I was i had an experience on a class trip where uh, I almost I, drowned myself too. So, yeah, I was yeah. In, a, in a river and it was up to my neck and my and my and my my mouth and I had to reach out and grab a friend by the arm who pulled me out of this. It wasn't a fast-moving river, but it was beyond my my depths and I that wasn't a strong swimmer. But it was just that an extra element of of somebody's death, mm -hmm. which you always react to viscerally because it's a death rather than just a, a ghost. This was the act of a certain entity having its life ended and a recreation thereof so it's something i react to even though yeah and at the outset too when the the, the guy's daughter and wife lose their lives to this runaway truck it was something it, it was it evoked something in me yeah mm -hmm. deaths are impactful and even that that was a like a dreamlike state he was in a phone booth and what is at the heart of every nightmare uh a feeling of helplessness. Mm -hmm. He's in a phone booth, just trapped, watching helplessly while his family dies in front of him. And that right. was quite interesting too. I don't know if I was drawing a personal experience, but the drown drowning is a terrible way to go. Well, Forced and drowning is is worse. And that was also, I mean, that the the person that was the victim of the drowning was helpless, very, yes. very helpless for many a way. We don't. I don't want it again. Well, we cited it. the re the wheelchair, but yeah, helpless. Mm -hmm. And you always empathize with people who are who who need help in society. So mm -hmm. this was just a perfect, okay, perfect. This is the perfect victim, and we all had a moments in this film of where we uh, where we reacted. So, yeah, I guess uh, yeah no. So I, I guess let's talk. You sort of talked a little bit, but let's talk about what we learned uh, watching the Changeling. I think we both sort of admire the movie. Do we love the movie? Uh, Not as much, but I think we admire it. We'll get to our star rating at the end. But what what did you learn from this movie? Hmm. 
Well, it, it was pretty, pretty uh, well put together as a puzzle because everyone who's involved in it is is meaningful somehow, uh, it, with the exception of Mr. Old, poor old Mr. Tuttle, the uh, the caretaker. He's just there, I think, as as the creepy, I guess, slow-witted guy who's typically in these kinds of movies who just sort of, he doesn't really, he could have been left out and it wouldn't have mattered. But even he was a kind of good counterpoint to uh, the overly mannered, academic, uh, button-up type arts guy with the blue-collar worker who gets to, who fixes things. So the fixer guy who's more macho and the more fet guy. That was kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Well, George's guy's not a fet. Let's, uh, let's, let's take that off the Not table personally, right now. <laughs> but that, that character was, he was very debonair and very, like, he could not, he was not a, a handyman who could deal with this house in his own way. He okay, needs a, a blue-collar guy, much like in Bird Offerings. They needed someone to fix things. So it was an interesting, but everyone else really had it was it was like a puzzle. Everyone served a purpose, whether it was a spirit medium or Mrs. Gray, uh, who's who owned the house and who was whose advice was solicited, and she becomes part of the story because her daughter has a, a nightmare as well involving this house. So ever and the police officer, just a terrific role when he comes to the house to investigate. Everyone has the role to play, and it was very it was parsimonious. It was perfect. There was no one extraneous to the. The plot. Everyone was there for a reason. It is everything was so well put together. But I thought, yeah, geez, twenty minutes too long. Toward the back end, just okay now. Uh, yeah, but again, like I mean, we keep saying. I think you know we're looking at this movie through modern sensibilities. We say twenty minutes too long, and I can only imagine watching this in the cinema in nineteen eighty. You know, people's expectations of what movies um, were supposed to deliver them were way different back then. They weren't meant to be thrill rides. They weren't meant to be these roller coaster rides and viewers were much more patient this is just at the tail end of the 70s you know some of the most uh, intellectually stimulating films ever made this was this was probably filmed in 1979 when it came out in 1980 people at the time were much more patient um and, and willing to invest themselves in a story for a good payoff so i don't you know it's funny when people say oh the movie was too long they should have snipped 20 minutes out and then I, the challenge i always say is Tell me which 20 minutes you would snip out. Yeah, yeah. Huh. And then you, it's hard to say because... Well, yeah, because it does have a more involved plot than mm -hmm. your typical uh, supernatural film, which barely has any. There are people just trying to escape a house and then, and then just kill whatever creature that caused uh, the calamity. This is very involved mm -hmm. and involves all different types of... Uh, different elements of society so you really uh, yeah i guess it would be tough to just easily snip bits away and just try and without losing a sense of the cohesive whole so maybe that's wrong or maybe i've been negatively that. affected by yeah. modern films to the point where m more modern films should be like the changeling than the reverse so maybe i'm you know i'm being unfair to well, say parts should be cut then we would have to just totally recondition audiences because i mean look at a movie like the witch i mean that was a movie that would harken back to that old fashions deliberately paced everything oh my, yeah. in its place and a place for everything and a story that just builds and rewards it. but not with you know your cheesy jump scares uh, yeah. and, but a movie that rewards the patient viewer with some extremely not cathartic but uh, really well I, maybe cathartic in a certain sense but yeah maybe it, it, yeah it enhances the payoff when you have to invest indeed. so much in it and the criticism of the witch was another well maybe the Babadook as well but more, I think the witch is a good example oh it's boring nothing happens there's not enough witch and da, 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 <laughs> yeah. you know 
audiences uh, not enough witch i love that yeah exactly <laughs> dial up the witch i can see the focus group now you know <laughs> the test market of this thing but you know, even, even um, i remember my girlfriend arguing with me about of all things the deer hunter when you want to talk about a oh, well, there's a 70s movie. More Deer that, Hunter in the Deer oh. Hunter. There wasn't enough hunting deer. <laughs> <laughs> but talk about a drawn out. Uh, like, I, I thought, oh, I was so moved by the wedding. I thought mm. it was fantastic. And she said, big deal. It's just like a Jewish wedding. And I was like, okay. Well, I, did, I wasn't aware of it so much. But I, I was just like, I want to be there. I want to party with these people. I want to get drunk with Christopher Walken and everyone in the Deer Hunter. And it didn't matter that that thing. But okay, I could see it. That, that it went on for 25 minutes. And if you're not invested in how that was filmed. I could see that being really uh, tortured, uh, you know, experience. Yeah. yeah. But, and then you, you want to play Russian roulette with Christopher Walken. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if we'll ever get around to, uh, talking about that, the Michael Cimino, just classic, which shook me big time when I saw it in a rep cinema, mm -hmm. just here in Little well, Italy. I got it on Blu-ray, so there, we can always get into it. Yeah, about it would be interesting to days. see what happened. I, just my heart was pounding after that movie. Mm -hmm. So and, and it was to a certain extent here, too. And the, the clanging, the children's chorus, the just the, the, the austere, spare quality and the house that became its own character. Mm -hmm. The house, the, the ghost, and the, camera the story. Work. The, the wonderful, almost Hitchcockian camera work. John Carpenter-esque kind of camera work. Too. Which made, which made <laughs> the, the, the house into its own entity, just mm -hmm. like in Burnt Offerings. And yeah, it was the, the, there were two major protagonists in this movie. Russell and the house. And the occupant of the house was almost inconsequential to the house itself, I think. What do you think? Yeah, I think so as well. Oh, and, I, and another thing I learned is just the, the presence of fire and the how impactful that is. We're, again, we're not going to spoil it, but uh, geez, one of the most frightening things that can occur in a house is a fearsome fire. A ghost, one, two. They're one, two. The most scary things that could possibly happen in a home. Right there, they both used... Well, home invasion is pretty scary. Oh, okay, too, yeah, right? but it's something more that, you know, depending on where you live, that's not uh, really a, a major concern. I guess it depends if you live in Chicago, in Toronto, pretty safe, but fire, and fire is inherently scary. Every, anytime you've got to deal with, it's, it's biblical, it's the sulfur fire from Revelations, it's, we've see, we see fire in lots of horror movies all the time. That was really effective too. And it'll be interesting when we finally get to, because it's inevitable, although we've been reticent because it's been so overly talked about, is the Overlook Motel the Shining, and The yeah. Shining. I thought, I thought you were going to talk about, you were going to bring up the Amityville Horror. We... That's, well, that's coming down the pike too. So when you have a caretaker of a house left to their own devices who crumbles mentally, and again, there are vast differences between these three films. It's going to be exciting to now, I'm, I'm more keen on revisiting The Shining mm -hmm. now that we've explored uh, all these kinds of horrors where the house you know, or the hotel uh, plays a key part. Star rating. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because I have my criticisms and, I, and to the second, more towards, I, see, that's the thing. If I was to rate this on the, the first hour, I would give it four, four stars. stars. Like a Me master too. class in building suspense through the supernatural and really treating the supernatural with respect with the deference it deserves. deference yeah. it deserves. As far as the, the second half went, which became more of a, as you said before, uh, sort of a, yeah, who like a done funny top who yeah. done it, that was compelling, but not as so. So, and the supernatural was woven through that, but it wasn't, at that point, most of the, well, there was 
the, the, the wheelchair, but the, anyway, I don't want to get... Uh, so that, that was a little less compelling, but I, so I'm going to take, you know, I would say from four stars, I'm going to bring it down to three and three quarters. But, you know, again, I mean, I didn't really say what I learned, but, when, but I, I'll just touch on it right now, and that is, you know, many people, when they talk about the tax shelter era of Canadian cinema, they use it as a pejorative, because there was a lot of crap that came out. There was a lot of crap, but there was so many classic movies that, to, that we cite to this day as some of the pinnacle of horror. And so the tax shelter era was a super good era. And you know, you know it's not all good. I mean, you know, you look at, like, for example, uh, let's go back to the uh, the Summer of Love, 1967, you mm -hmm. know, the revolutionized music. There was the Sgt. Peppers, and then there was these, like, you know, shite little... Oh yeah, terrible. Yeah. I don't even know what. Like yeah, yeah. Hermes Hermits. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like not everything <laughs> is going to be good. Peppermint's crap. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So you know, you take your good with your bad. Yeah. And th there's so much more good, I think, that came out of the tax shelter era than the bad. So it's yeah. a great, it's a wonderful, fruitful era for horror films, especially and for Canadian cinema in general. So I'm going to give it three and a half. And what's your star rating? Yeah, exact same. Give the first bit, uh, first hour. Uh, until about the seance bit, uh, four stars all the, the way, and then post seance yeah. we're going to go three stars, so we average it out to three and a half, and three definitely and half. well worth checking out. As is our website www.reallyawfulmovies.com. We got reviews uh, and lots of fun stuff, uh, two to three times a week. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, Really Awful Movies Podcast, with new episodes every week for your listening pleasure. And we'll talk to you soon. Take care.